Hey, let me begin our time together in Ephesians 5 today by asking you a question, a pretty uh, simple question, I think, but uh, one that might cause a bit of introspection. Um, Are you, are you a spiritual person? Are you a spiritual person? Would you describe yourself as a spiritual person? Or have you ever described anybody else as a spiritual person? Have you ever looked at someone and said, she is so spiritual, I'd just love to be more like her. Or he is the most spiritual man that I've ever known. Are you a spiritual person? And I guess if we're going to ask that question, we should define what we mean by spiritual, right? Because we recognize that not everyone would have the same understanding or give the same definition to what it means to be spiritual. In fact, in our, in our culture, uh, you would expect that there might be a lot of different definitions of what it means to be spiritual, and some of those would not be very good definitions at all. A few years ago, the Huffington Post ran an article about uh, spirituality, and they defined a spiritual person like this. They said, uh, being a spiritual person means being someone whose highest priority is to be loving to yourself and others. A spiritual person cares about people, animals, and the planet. A spiritual person knows that we, i.e. people, animals, and the planet, that we are all one. And a spiritual person attempts to honor this oneness. Now, let me ask you, is that a good definition of spirituality? Not so much, right? It's a totally uh, worldly kind of definition, perhaps, a new age uh, sort of definition of spirituality, but it's in no way a Christian understanding of what it means to be spiritual or a biblical view of spirituality. So my point in sharing that with you is to say that when you ask the question, are you a spiritual person, depends on who you're asking, you know, what the answer is that you might get. Now, as followers of Jesus and Bible believers, we know that the Bible does, in fact, call us to be spiritual men and spiritual women. In fact, the Apostle Paul chided, as many of you will know, the Corinthian believers for not being, for failing to be spiritual people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now notice what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, you are not spiritual. I couldn't talk to you like spiritual people. And the reason you're not spiritual, or by definition, your lack of spirituality is you are fleshly or carnal, and you are immature, spiritually immature, and you are fleshly in your way of living. That was his definition of their lack of spirituality. Again, in Galatians 6 and verse 1, he challenges the Galatian church with the need. He says the church needs spiritual people. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is called in a transgression or a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of meekness or gentleness. So, so Paul says that there will be occasions when people within the body of Christ will stumble in their walk. They'll be overtaken by a temptation or a fault. They'll, they'll be bound up in sin or bondage. And who will they need to rescue them? They'll need people who are 
spiritual. So he warns us about failing to be spiritual people. He lifts high this need for people who are spiritual. So let me ask you again, are you a spiritual person? I want to talk today about what that means. What is it, in fact, uh, what is the definition of being a spiritual person? Before we get into that definition, though, let me welcome you into our fourth, fourth week of five, uh, where we are thinking together about life in the Spirit. And we're, we're thinking about the ways in which the Holy Spirit refreshes and renews our lives. Uh, Over the last three weeks, we have been talking together about how the Holy Spirit awakens our heart. Do you remember in week number one, how he awakens our heart? Uh, This is his work in our conversion, our conviction, and our salvation. Uh, We talked about in week number two the ways that the Holy Spirit renews our mind. This is how he begins to change when we come to Christ. He changes the way that we think, the way we see our world and our God and our place in his world. And then last week, we talked about the way that the Holy Spirit quickens the body. That is that he takes this body dead in sin and makes it alive unto God so that we can serve the Lord in the ways that will please him. This is his work in our sanctification. Today, we're talking about the way that the Holy Spirit repurposes our lives, the way that he repurposes our lives for the glory of Jesus by filling us with the Holy Spirit. And thereby making us, by definition, spiritual people. You ready? We're going to read it. Ephesians 5. Look at it. Verse number 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And be not drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, that's what it means, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of of God. Now, by the way, it's not part of the teaching today, but I just want to notice because in week number one, we spent a fair amount of time talking about the person of the Holy Spirit as we were preparing to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. And we identified who he is and said that the Holy Spirit is God and that God is a trinity, a triune God. And I just wonder, in light of that, did you notice in verse number 18, 19, and 20, did you notice the Trinitarian language? Did you see the Trinity? Did you see that as we were reading the passage? In verse number 18, you find the Spirit. He says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. That's the third person of the Godhead. And in verse number 20, he says, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father. That's the first person of the Godhead. And we give thanks to God the Father Uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the second person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So in this passage, again, not part of what we're learning today, but it's interesting to see you have this Trinitarian language. What is important to see in this passage for today is that there is a clear imperative that is given to every single believer. In fact, there are two imperatives in verse number 18. There's a negative one, 
uh, something that we are not to do, and there is a positive one, something that we are commanded to do. Do you see the negative one in verse number 18? And be not drunk with wine. Do not get drunk on wine. That's the negative uh, imperative. And then the positive imperative, but he says, rather than being drunk with wine, you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let me go back to my original question. Are you a spiritual person? In answering that question, I would ask a second question, and that is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you filled with with the Holy Spirit. I want to answer three questions today about being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How do I pursue being filled with the Spirit? And what will happen if, in fact, I am filled with the Spirit? Are you ready? We're going to talk about these three things. What does it mean? How do I pursue it? And what does it look like? Now, there's probably a point of clarification that I need to make at the beginning because. Um, there is very often much confusion between this phrase or command being filled with the Spirit and another phrase that we find a couple of times in the New Testament, which is different, but it sounds similar, and oftentimes they're confused as being the same thing. And that second phrase is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I want to talk about the difference between being filled with the Spirit and being baptized with the Spirit. There is a difference. Hold your finger in Ephesians chapter number 5 and go back, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. It's the text we were in last Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and look with me at verse number 13. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 says this, For by one Spirit... Are we all baptized into one body? Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we are bond or free, we have all been made to drink into or to drink of one spirit. All right? Verse 13, for we have all, by one spirit, we have all been baptized. I want you to say these words out loud with me. No matter where you are, Merriman at home here in Weaverville, I want you to say these words out loud with me. Um, Verse number 13 says, for we have all been baptized. Will you say that? We have all been baptized. And then it says we've been baptized by one spirit. Say that, by one spirit. So we have been all been baptized by the spirit. When we talk about the differences between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, here's the first difference. It is that the baptism of the Spirit is a universal Christian experience. Every follower of Jesus, every believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you are not a Christian. Because he says in, Rome, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, for we have how many? Some, the super spiritual, the elite, the ones who, who pursued it and found it. No, we have all, we have all been baptized by the Spirit. Romans chapter number 8 verse 9, I think, says the same thing. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you do not belong to Him. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a universal Christian experience. 
The word baptized means to be immersed in. I've taught you this before when we do water baptism. It's what it means. By the way, it's the reason we baptize by immersion. We don't baptize by sprinkling. We don't baptize by pouring because baptism doesn't mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean pour. It means dunk. That's why we dunk. Trying to be biblical Baptists, all right? We put people in the water, under the water, submerged in the water, immersed in the water because that's the meaning of the word. It's baptizo is the original word. Baptize is a transliteration of that word, and it means to submerge. I think I've told you before, by the way, that I once read an old, old recipe about how you make pickles. And the recipe said that you take your cucumbers and you baptize them in the vinegar. Well, amen, right? If you're going to turn a pickle in, or a cucumber into a pickle, you can't sprinkle it with vinegar. It's not going to work. You can't even pour vinegar over it. you got to baptize it in the vinegar. right? So the word means to immerse or to fully submerge or to identify with. So when we come to faith in Jesus, we are immersed uh, in and by the Holy Spirit. This verse in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, tells us several important things about the baptism of the Spirit. Why don't you write them down? I'm going to go through them quickly. The first thing it tells us is that spirit baptism unites the believer with Jesus. Spiritual baptism unites the believer with Jesus. Do you see this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13? For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. And what is the body? Well, verse number 27 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, tells us it is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. So baptism in the Spirit means that the, at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit takes the repentant sinner expressing their faith in Jesus and he baptizes them, he immerses them into the body of Christ. Listen, I'm not going to heaven because I joined a church one day. Neither are you or is anyone else. Joining a church doesn't put you in Christ. The only way you get into Christ is if the Holy Spirit puts you into Christ, immerses you into the body of Christ. This is what he does. He unites us with Christ. The, the second thing that he does is that spirit baptism unites every believer with every other believer. He goes on in this verse to say, we are all baptized into the body of Christ, uh, into one body, whether we are Jews or Gentiles, whether we are bond or free. You can extrapolate that and it, you know, draw up any, any kind of uh, differences that you want to, whether you're uh, black or white, whether you're uh, rich or poor, whether you live uh, in the South or you live up North, whether you're an American or an Asian, right? I mean, whether you are uh, educated or illiterate, doesn't matter. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, when you are baptized in the Spirit with every other believer, you're baptized together, Right? And you are in that same body. So you belong to Christ, that means you belong to me. I belong to Christ, that means I belong to you. Because we have been baptized by the same Spirit. Third thing that the Spirit does in baptism is that the Spirit uh, baptism results in our being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. At the moment of our conversion, the Spirit baptizes us into Christ. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes to live 
within us. Uh, look at verse number 13 again. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, bond or free. We have all, no matter who we are, we have all been made to drink, to drink in or to drink into or to drink of one spirit. And the, and the thought here when we drink of that spirit is that at the moment of our spirit baptism and conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Uh, let me just read to you. You don't have to turn if you, if you don't want to, but you might want to turn and mark it. Listen to how Jesus talked about this in John chapter number 7. John chapter 7, verse number 37. The Bible says, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture says, out of his belly or his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But he spake of the, this he spake of the spirit which they that believe on him should receive. So Jesus said when we come to him, we drink in and then the spirit of God begins to flow uh, out of us. What does spirit baptism do? It puts us in Christ. It unites us together and it it uh, occasions the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. One fourth and final thing I'd mention that spirit baptism does is that it provides every believer with spiritual gifts. It provides every believer with spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts some next week. In truth, that could be a series unto itself. But I would just point out to you that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists some of the spiritual gifts. In fact, a lot of the operative spiritual gifts, and some inoperative, I believe, are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, down at the end of the chapter, verse number 28, it speaks of these gifts of the Spirit, all right? Now, imagine all of this. So if I were to share my testimony with you and tell you about the night that I came to faith in Jesus, here's what I would say. What I would not say is, on April the 29th, 1981, I went to a youth revival with some of my friends. The preacher stood up and preached. I went down to the, knee, uh, to the altar, got on my knees, and said a prayer. And in that moment, I was baptized into the body of Christ, unified with every other believer in the world. The Spirit of God came to dwell within me and imparted to me spiritual gifts. I wouldn't say that. But that's exactly what happened. I would say I got saved. It's a lot simpler. And I had no idea the night that I got saved that all those things had happened. But in that moment, the Spirit of God did all of those things. Amen? Are you with me? This is spirit baptism. A another way to say it would be to say that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit positions us as the children of God. It positions us as the children of God. And it only happens once in our entire lives. One time. And by the way, there's never a place in the Bible where Paul or any other New Testament writer commands us to seek the baptism of the Spirit. We are not commanded to seek it. It simply happens at the moment of our conversion. But we are commanded. We are given an imperative, not when it comes to the baptism of the Spirit, but when it comes to the filling of the Spirit. Our text back in Ephesians, are you still there? Ephesians Chapter 5 and verse number 18. There is the command. There's where we're commanded to do something. We are to be filled with the Spirit. Now, by the way, uh, this is an interesting um, antithesis that Paul creates. It's an interesting 
dichotomy that he draws. Do not be filled with the Spirit, but, I'm sorry, do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. What he is saying to us, I mean, the implications of this statement are clear. Write it down. It is that followers in Jesus, Christians, are to live under the influence. We are. We live under the influence. The influence of the Spirit. Now, again, Paul's point couldn't be more clear. His his point is that the abuse of alcohol leads to drunkenness. And when a person is drunk, they are no longer under the influence of their own faculties, but they have now put themselves under the influence of alcohol, and they have, in many cases, no control over their attitudes You ever known anybody that was the nicest guy you'd ever meet till he got drunk? Then he was a mean drunk. That's tragic. Their attitudes are not under their control. Their behaviors or actions are not under their control. Their body moves differently. Their reactions are different. Their reflexes are are, uh, slower. Their speech is slurred. Everything about a drunk person is different from a sober person. Oftentimes, they're not in charge of their morals. People who are drunk will do things they would never consider doing when they were sober. Paul is making the point that alcohol, when it is abused, is a controlling substance. It's a controlling influence, and he tells us, do not be drunk with wine. Now, by the way, that's a good sermon in and of itself. Amen? I I could just preach on that for a while. Don't get drunk. God's, God's very clear about this. But it's not... It's not Paul's point in the message, as bad as I want to preach it. It's not Paul's point in the text. Rather, he's using drunkenness as this this opposite of, this antithesis or this, this sort of backdrop against which to make his full point, which is that we are to live under the influence, the controlling influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Now, it'll help you, I think, to understand. I've taught you this for years, and so some of you will know this already, but it'll, it's helpful to understand what the word filled means in this context. And I, I've often said to you, it's not filled from the bottom to the top. That's not really the idea here. So you don't want to be measuring like I'm two-thirds full or halfway full. It's not filled from the bottom to the top as much as it is filled through and through. If you can think of a sail on a sailboat when there is no wind that just hangs along the mast pole and just is limp and inoperative and ineffective, and then when the wind blows, that sail billows out, fills with the wind, and suddenly it becomes this vital tool to the movement, the operation, and the direction, and the effectiveness of the boat. This is the idea of being filled with the Spirit. That what I need is for the Spirit of God to fill my life so that my life begins to become this useful, effective uh, source of the work that he wants to do in the world. Now, I mentioned that the baptism of the Spirit is a universal experience that happens one time in our lives. When we talk about the filling of the Spirit, it is obviously not 
a universal and automatic experience. Why, why would I say it's obviously not an automatic experience? Because Paul commands us to pursue it. And if it happened automatically, there would be no reason for him to say, hey, be filled with the Spirit. So it is not an automatic experience. It is something that we ought to pursue. And it is something that is an ongoing experience. Unlike the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens once and it's done, the filling of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing experience. In fact, the, the way that the word is used originally in verse number 18 when he says, be filled with the Spirit, it's this idea of progressive or continuing action. Here's a very appropriate way to read verse number 18. Do not be drunk with wine, but be being filled. That's the right way to read it, actually. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit or continuously be uh, filled with the Spirit. So we are to pursue it. We are to pursue this ongoing filling of the Spirit. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Uh, somebody might say, well, we ought to just pray for it, right? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we just pray for the Holy Spirit uh, to fill our lives? And certainly we should do that. That's, that's a good thing to do. But there, there's more than just simply asking God to do it. Let me suggest something to you. Hold your finger in Ephesians and go back uh, to the book of Romans. I really do want you to turn to Romans 12 and take a look at this with me. Romans chapter number 12. And many of you be, will be familiar with these verses uh, the first couple of verses of Romans 12. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is an act of worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So if I am going to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, Paul gives me in Romans 12, verse number one, what I think would, is a very reasonable step in that pursuit. Let me give these things to you quickly. Jot them down. Number one, if you want to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, dedicate your entire life to God. Verse number one of Romans 12, I beseech you, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you offer you present to God your bodies. It means your entire life, all that you are. It means your, your days, your months, your moments, your years, your ambitions, your hopes, your dreams, your calendar, your checkbook, your relationships, everything, your talents, your gifts, everything that you are, you lay as an offering of worship before this God who has saved you by his grace. In fact, that's why he says in verse number one, I beseech you therefore, brethren. The therefore takes you back to everything he said in the first 11 chapters where he's laid out the clear mercy of God through Jesus. And he says, now if God has done that for us, what is our only reasonable act of worship? It is to take our entire lives and offer ourselves fully to God. If you want to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, present, dedicate your entire life to God. Yield all that you are to him. Yield every remaining day of your life to him. If you're young and you have 60, 70, 80 years left to live, give them all to him and give them to him today. And if you're older and you might only have a few years left, then what time is left? Give those years to him. Dedicate your entire life to God. Number two, 
If you want to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, be authentic in your faith. Be authentic in your faith. He says in verse number two, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the world. The idea is do not be pressed into the mold of the world. Here's the thing. If I want my life to be used mightily by the Spirit of God, I've got to quit saying one thing and living a different way. Now listen carefully. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a repellent to the infilling work of the Holy Spirit. It is. When we, when we pretend to be something that we're not, when we say that we love Jesus and believe uh, the, the Bible and we want our lives to honor him, and yet the decisions that we make, the attitudes with which we live, the priorities of our lives reflect a totally worldly uh, uh, way of living, then we are not being filled with the Spirit. Isn't that what Paul chided the Corinthians about? I couldn't talk to you as people full of the Spirit. I couldn't talk to you as spiritual. Why? Because you, you're not maturing in your faith and you are carnal. If you want to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, dedicate your life entirely to God. Be authentic in your faith. Thirdly, welcome the Spirit's transforming power. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that living out the will of God is good and perfect, uh, a good and perfect way to live. Now, by the way, can I just warn you, if y'all are listening, say amen. I haven't got to say that in so long. Can I just warn you that when you pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, when you dedicate your life fully to God, when you, when you begin to say, God, I want to be authentic in my faith, and then you begin to welcome the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, and you're saying, Spirit of God, change me and fill me. Guess what he will do? He will change you. And you have to be willing and ready to let him transform you. You ever met anybody that said, it's where I am. I ain't changing. Well, can I tell you something? You got a problem with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because you're not okay the way you are. Amen? I'm not either. We all need to be transformed. And when the Spirit of God begins to fill our lives, He begins to transform our lives, renewing our minds. We talked about this last week and changing the ways in which we live. If you want to be transformed, or if you want the fullness of the Spirit, by, by dedicating your life, offering your life, welcoming the Holy Spirit and being authentic, you know what you're doing? You're not just saying a prayer of invitation to the Holy Spirit to fill you. You're, you're acting in an inviting way. You haven't closed the door. You're opening the door to him and his influence. You're, you're responding to what Jesus said in Revelation 3. Was it verse 20? Where he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's speaking to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open to me, I'll come into him. I'll sup with him. We'll have fellowship. If you overcome, I'm going to give you a crown. But we're inviting him by our responses to him. We're inviting him to transform our lives. Now, I probably should say as well that I believe that the filling of the Holy Spirit is, uh, first of all, progressive. And secondly, I would say it's nonlinear. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, when I say it's progressive, I mean to say that as we mature in our faith, then we are filled more and more fully with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is what Paul chided the Corinthians about. I could not speak to you as spiritual because you're, you're infants. You're not maturing in your faith. I believe as we grow in our faith, we mature in our faith, the, the Spirit of God fills our lives more and more and more. So here's the thing. I would fully expect 
that someone who has known Jesus five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years will be walking in the fullness of the Spirit much more so than somebody who's known Jesus six months or a year or two years. But very often those passing of years are not the true reflection of our process of maturing. Very often people who have been saved for years have failed to mature and those who have just come to Christ are maturing at a much faster pace. So the point is, as we mature, then the fullness of the Spirit has more and more possession of our lives. I also said it's not, uh, it, it is nonlinear. And what I mean by that is it doesn't move in a straight line. I, I think that it is true, wouldn't you agree this is true in your experience, that I, I yield and surrender some things to the Spirit sometimes and then sometimes I take them back, right? So it's not this constant never, never backing up, never stuttering a little bit in my path, there, are, there is this give and take in my spiritual walk. And so you might be in a place where you say, I'm, where the devil is saying to you, I'm such a loser. I just, I'm so terrible in my walk. I just was making progress and now I'm going backwards. Know this, that today is a new day and you can surrender that territory to him again. You, you don't have to say, well, I've given, I, I, he's given up on me. No, he hasn't. He who has begun a good work in you is committed. He's faithful and he'll finish it to the end. So know that there is a process, a progressive process in our fullness of the Spirit. And by the way, that's not just some gemology. You, you, you see that in the Bible where the disciples are filled with the Spirit more than one time. The disciples are filled in Acts 2. It says again in Acts 4, the disciples are filled with the Spirit. It says again in Acts 13, the disciples are filled with the Spirit. And so again, this is a, this is a progressive and an ongoing thing. So the, the last thing I would say about that is that the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and when you listen to this very carefully, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not about me getting more of the Spirit. Now, whether you're at home or at Merriman Avenue, and certainly in Weirville, if you're listening closely, shout amen real loud. Amen. Don't miss this. You've got all, if you're saved, you've got all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. You're not looking for more of him. All of him indwells you. So the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not about you getting more of the Spirit. The, Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit is about the Holy Spirit getting more of you. In fact, here's the prayer. Maybe you'll jot this down as a prayer just to remember. Just to say, Lord, I've got all of the Holy Spirit I'm going to get. Fill me as I give more of myself to you. That's the prayer. And it's a prayer we ought to pray. God, I just want to keep surrendering my life to you for your fullness, for your transforming power. Well, just a couple of more things in the passage in Ephesians. Go back there with me if you're not still hanging out there. A couple of more things I would mention to you, just by way of encouragement. I won't say much about these, but they're in the text, and so I, I need to mention it. And they ought to be very, very encouraging things to us, okay? So Ephesians 5.18 says that we ought to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, um, and so we've been talking about how that happens, what it looks like, and how we can pursue it. What will happen if, if I do pursue the filling of the Spirit? If I am dedicating my life, I am asking Him to take more of me, I am surrendering my life and being authentic and, and, and welcoming His transformation, what, what's going to happen in my life? Well, a lot of things are going to happen in your life, but let me tell you a couple of things that the text says will happen. Number one is, we should know that the Spirit-filled life is a worship-filled life. And I say this just by way of, of encouragement to you. The Spirit-filled life is a worship-filled life. Did you notice how that 
the command of verse 18 transitions seamlessly into the encouragement of verse number 19. Be filled with the Spirit as you are filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves. That means, by the way, not talking to yourself. Although that's okay too, as long as you don't answer. Speaking to one another is what it means. In the congregation, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart uh, to the Lord. To be a Christian who is walking in the fullness of the Spirit is to be a Christian who experiences new, new levels, new, uh, new uh, experiences of uh, a life of worship. The Spirit-filled Christian is a worshiping Christian. And I would say it to you this way. The Spirit-filled church is a worshiping church. It really is true. That when the Spirit of God fills our lives, he tunes our hearts to sing praise to the Lord. Now, Jesus said that he told the disciples on the night that he was arrested, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he is going to teach you about me. And so how does the Holy Spirit tune my heart to worship? He teaches me about Jesus. He turns my heart to worship Jesus. Now, I would just suggest to you that you can walk into almost any church service somewhere and you can pretty quickly tell whether or not there are very many spirit-filled believers in that worship service. You can pretty much tell because when the spirit of worship is alive in that church, it's not because of the, of the pews or the chairs or the building or the, or the program or the pastor. It's because the people are filled with the spirit. They're worshiping on their own. And when you come together, if you get a bunch of worshiping people together, you can't help but worship as a congregation, right? And if you get a bunch of non-worshiping, non-spirit-filled people together and you give them spiritual songs to sing, sitting in nice, neat rows, it will not automatically equal worship in that gathering. So when we're filled with the spirit, we're filled with worship. Uh, early this morning, uh, I was interviewed by the local news because they want to talk about our plan for reopening. And, and Brookstone is the largest church west of Charlotte uh, that's reopening today. And they want to talk about why are you reopening now? And, and why is this important? And is it too soon? And, and, uh, and one of the questions the reporter asked was, uh, very specifically, he said, uh, does the church have to meet in order to be the church? Can't the church uh, be the church without coming to church? And my answer was, of course. In fact, in the last 11 weeks, we have not ceased to be the church. Not just Brookstone, the church all over the world has continued to be the church. And in fact, I would suggest perhaps in some more powerful and impacting ways than we've been the church in the last 100 years. But coming together to worship is not about being the church. It is about the beauty of the body of Christ coming together in the Holy Spirit and exalting the name of Jesus. This is the privilege of our gathering, to worship together, to learn of him, and then to go out there and to be the church. You can't quarantine the gospel. You can't quarantine the global body of Christ. But the very moment the government says it's good to begin coming back together, then I believe the church ought to begin to come back together. Amen. And praise God. I mean, listen, we've been working toward this. Thank you for that. I agree with that. Amen. But we've been working toward this day for several weeks and, and the Lord just lined it up so perfectly. 
because we were already planning for the 24th. And then phase two uh, came in uh, on Thursday in North Carolina. And then just before that, the judge handed down the ruling, says you can't stop churches from gathering. And then lo and behold, on Friday, our president said churches are essential and churches ought to meet this weekend. I was just grateful to be one step ahead of the president on that. Right? But my point is worship, the spirit-filled life is a worship-filled life. Spirit-filled church is a worship-filled church. Secondly, what happens when we worship, or when, I'm sorry, when we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life is a life filled with gratitude. You see this in verse number 20. He says, uh, being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, worshiping God yourself, and then verse 20, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. See, what happens is when you're filled with the Spirit, you can begin to live by the power of the Spirit with a heart of gratitude. Here's what we know. Life is not always easy, right? Life's full of setbacks. It's full of disappointments. It's full of difficulties and hardships. People, people disappoint us. People get sick. People die. Uh, we get sick. Things happen. But here's the thing. When I am filled with the Holy Spirit, I, I have no promise that I'm not going to experience those setbacks and hardships. But what I do have the promise of is that by the power of the Spirit, my joy, my gratitude is not based upon my circumstance. It's in Jesus. And I can give him thanks. Thank you, Lord, that you're good, even when life is hard. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful, even when the bottom is falling out. Thank you, Lord, that I'm never alone. Thank you, Lord, that I will not wake up in the morning. If I wake up to disaster, I will not crawl out of my bed by myself. Jesus will be standing there with me. Thank God for that. The Spirit of God lets me know that. And then lastly, the last thing in verse number 21, the Spirit-filled life is a life filled with harmony, or maybe unity would be a better word. Uh, in verse number 21, he launches into what is a long discussion about relationships, but he lays the foundation for that discussion in verse 21 by saying, um, submitting yourself. So be filled with the Spirit, be a worshiper, uh, be, uh, have gratitude, and then verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So the Spirit-filled life is one that is always moving toward harmony, unity, and reconciliation. That doesn't mean the Spirit-filled believer doesn't have disagreements with people. Surely we do. But it means that we always have the ability in the power of the Spirit to move toward reconciliation. I would just suggest to you, if you are a Christian couple, I don't know, maybe some married couples in here who are struggling in your marriage. And I get it. Life is tough and marriage is hard and relationships are difficult. And, you know, when you get quarantined and you got to spend, what, two and a half months in the same house together, nobody can go anywhere. <laughs> you know. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, and sometimes that's a good thing. But if you're having a tough time in your marriage and you're both Christians, can I just suggest to you that where there is the fullness of the Spirit in a husband and the fullness of the Spirit in the wife, even though their relationship might be fraught with difficulties, there is the possibility of moving together, submitting to one another in a spirit of unity and love. It's possible. It doesn't always happen. It should, but it doesn't always happen but it's possible that it could happen. And so the spirit-filled life is one that's always moving toward unity. Show me somebody who fights with everybody all the time. I'll show you somebody who probably is not walking in the fullness of the spirit. And so let me end where I began. Are you a spiritual person? Are you walking in the fullness of the spirit? Have you surrendered your life fully to the Lord? Are you authentic in your faith? 
And are you inviting his Holy Spirit to feel and transform you? If you will, then you will find great joy and blessing in your Christian walk.